Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. I am uh, beyond thrilled that Julia Cameron has returned to have another conversation. There are few people whose work has had a more tangible impact on my ability to do creative work. The Artist's Way changed my life for the better, full stop, period. And Julia has not stopped uh, doing this kind of work for um, all of our benefit. Her new book, Write for Life, uh, which is a six-week version uh, of The Artist's Way for uh, kind of project-specific, but also um, a great introduction into all the stuff she talks about is available and is something that you should uh, get. We'll talk about why. I have read the first two weeks of it, but I actually have a project that when I'm done with this season of Billions, I need to do, and I'm saving it to do it then, the whole book, because I'll tell you, Julian, I wonder if you've heard this from people, but the moment I started reading it, I just felt so uh, much comfort and support and, and love in the way that you bring us back to the gift of creativity. And so I'm, I'm wondering what made you write this now? What were you thinking about? Well, I've been a writer for 56 years. Uh, and I found myself listening to people uh, and hearing a lot of negative mythology about writing, that it took great discipline, that it was very difficult, uh, that it was something uh, that you had to be flogged forward to do. And I thought, that's not my experience. So I thought, maybe I'll write a book about my experience, sort of the tricks and clues and cues that have come to me over the years. So hopefully the book dismantles a, a lot of negative mythology and moves people into action. Well, your books do that for sure. And I did feel that you're the first person who very clearly um, articulated both the benefit of morning pages, three longhand pages, uh, that are free writing. In this book, you make it very clear they're supposed to be eight by 11 pages, which your workbook was, but which all of us have at times allowed the journal to shrink. And it made me get my bigger journal out again when I read that in the new book. Um, and uh, and the, the artist date. But I, here's where I want to start at, uh, with for a second, which is you and I last spoke three months into the pandemic. Yes. And I, I want to ask what the last few years have been like for you from, from the standpoint of thinking about, you know, and feeling uh, uh, creativity. Like, has it been easy for you personally to stay in a flow state or did the, the happenings in the world um, affect you in, in a way that made it challenging? Uh, just whatever the real answer is to that. Well, I think the real answer is that I found myself being more creative during the pandemic, that it sort of cornered me back onto myself uh, and gave me an impetus to, to start work. So I wrote a play uh, and I wrote a couple of books uh, and I found myself feeling inspired, 
uh, and I found myself feeling connected. Uh, and I, I think it's because the pandemic took away a lot of distractions uh, and sort of left me squarely faced with myself. Yes, but I, I wondered, I mean, that tracks, that tracks for me. And I think probably if you're someone who had a creative practice already, maybe it, there were, I mean, I know I found myself, you know, the show that we were making stopped um, abruptly. And then I, I found myself with members of my family, but up in a, in a house. And, but I suddenly remembered, and, and you know, this show I'd been working on with hundreds of people stopped. But I suddenly remembered, oh, I have guitars here. And I started writing songs. And part of that came from the pages, of course, right? And then that practice really blossomed for me in a, in a real way. And those became artist dates. But for someone as sensitive as you to the way people, the pain people can be in, the siloed nature of people's existences at, at times, I wonder how you processed the closed off place so many people found themselves in, meaning I know you take that stuff in. So were you worried for folks? Did, you, did it give an added urgency to you writing this book that, that you knew people were a bit more siloed? Well, I'm interested by the term siloed. I've never heard it before. Like in a, you know, in a silo, like alone, um, uh, in a way with locked in, the way a missile might be in a silo or something like that is how I'm using it. Um, because people were kind of like in their own little worlds, it seemed. And I found that people, it seemed to me when I would speak to people that they were, many people were having a very hard time living inside their imaginations because they felt so anxious and they felt so closed off. Well, I think it's an interesting thing that during the pandemic, the artist's way climbed up on bestseller lists again it was suddenly number three after 30 years. Uh, and I, I think it's because people were cornered into feeling like there must be something more. There must be something that I can connect to. And, and I think uh, that sense of quiet desperation spurred people into trying the artist's way. Uh, and I think, I think that it helped that the book had a reputation by then, uh, so that when people would think, what can I do? They would think, oh, yes, there's that goddamn book. Maybe I can try. Right, right. There's this book that my cousin's been telling me to read or my un my teacher's been telling me to read. And finally, they, or this you know stupid guy with a podcast has been telling me to read, and they finally... Um, were able to reach for it. And then did people, I remember that wonderful piece that was in the New Yorker um, about, about that Rachel Syme wrote, uh, who's my pal about that. And as you started to hear about it, I'm wondering if that pushed you forward a little bit with this intention to write this book, you know, as you, as you saw how hungry and thirsty people were for this. Did you find that rewarding? And did it uh, inspire you? Well, I did find it rewarding to think there was a place for the book, uh, that that the book would, would find a home. Uh, and I found myself writing 
to an imaginary someone who was hungry. Uh, and I found myself writing uh, specifically to be of aid uh, and to be of service. Uh, and I, I found that when I wrote out of a desire to be of service, my prose straightened out. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and, sure. And I found myself thinking, oh, this has a place. This this will do some good in the world. So I found myself feeling connected to a large and invisible audience uh, that was hungry. Uh, and so I felt like, well, maybe I can feed them a little. Yes, well, you certainly could. I, you know, so much of what you've written about over the years has to do with finding ways for the writer or the artist in general or the person trying to tap into this creativity to not allow the opinion of the world to intrude in a way that knocks them off course or that sends them back into the protected cowering kind of position. So how do you integrate that approach, which I find incredibly valuable, with opening yourself up for some feedback? Meaning, how do you have your antenna out enough that you can receive oh, people need this, and they're responding with, I don't want to let in the other kind of, uh, of feedback. Because I think that's difficult for people sometimes to figure out that, that combination of, of openness and protectiveness. So how do you balance it, or how do you think about it? Well, this is where we come back to sounding like a fanatic, uh, and we say, morning pages give you openness, to others while giving you a steady place to stand yourself. Uh, and they are a witness to your own process. So I think what happens with morning pages uh, is that you begin to trust uh, and they give you a, a sense that there is a benevolent something which is looking out for you. Uh, and when you feel that benevolent something, which you can call the, the muse, the higher power, God, you know, people conceptualize it in different ways, but they feel it. Uh, and the feeling of safety is what gives people the, the courage to both be open and to be steadfast in their own decisions. Yes. I mean, I, I am a fanatic as well. I mean, I can't think of one tool I've ever come across that's as valuable uh, and as necessary. Uh, I think I mentioned the last time we spoke, meditation is very important to me too. In this bo new book, you do right away distinguish between this kind of active meditation and other meditation. And I keep going back and forth on whether I do my transcendental meditation first or morning pages first, but I never... I never skip either. Every day I do both. Uh -huh. um, but I, I completely agree. I notice that, and it's funny you mentioned, you know, you shorthanded the, the 
Henry David Thoreau quote, you know, the mass of all men lead lives of quiet desperation. And when you said back to their quiet, desperate lives and something you and Thoreau seem to have in common is that the natural world features very strongly in how you communicate. And I was thinking about how my morning pages are never centered on the physical world. And it's so comforting to read yours when you, the little excerpts you put in the book, because it seems to me that you are so drawn to it and it's a way back to yourself. Is that actually what happens for you? Does it, or, or is it a way to present to us this notion of uh, the con- connectedness? Well, I, I think I have an experience of connectedness uh, that comes before the desire to communicate connectedness. So yes. I, I think uh, I do find great comfort in the natural world uh, and uh, a, a sense I live on top of a mountain uh, in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Uh, and I look out at the mountain and I think something mighty made this. Uh, and it's a um, it's a calling uh, that comes to me from just the the sight of the mountains, uh, and I think that I'm lucky to have the mountain view, but that when I lived in New York, I had the Chrysler Building with its pineapple cone uh. head, uh, and I found that looking at some of the man-made things also made me think uh, about sort of the honor and glory of a higher power, that they were inspired. Yes. And, you know, for me, as we talked about last time, I don't have any, I don't have the exact higher power belief, but these techniques work. Uh, regardless of whether you, uh, and I want to say that to people who listen to me who uh, wonder how this work that you're describing as having come from a force greater, but I, I love that you mentioned the muse because, you know, I find the beauty inside that maybe we're all just endowed with this. And maybe I just don't think about the ultimate source of it, or I don't relate to it in the exact way, but um, the morning pages still open up the beautiful part inside of you, the part of you that's open and wants to connect and wants to express um, from the place from which you feel, I feel most um, alive. But Julia, you're such a beautiful writer, uh, such an inviting writer. Thank you. Well, but you are, and and it's such a gift that you give. uh, It is, when you say you write in service, I do understand that because I receive it that way. But however... (laughs) When you describe, when you sort of describe your own morning pages and, and these little sections of it, the way you talk about the physical world, I wish my morning pages were as elegant as, the, as yours. And, <laughs> can, you know, because, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm someone who notices the way people talk. Like, I don't notice the physical world as much. I notice the way people express themselves. And uh, I notice the, the, the rhythms of the way people speak. I notice their lexicon. Uh, that's the stuff that always, my whole life, I, I noticed you know, someone's idiolect and what it means about them. And that's where I, 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 I start. Um, then I can go from there, right, to the surroundings, to the larger picture. But can you just assure us uh, 
that sometimes your pages are a mess and that you're they're, they're, uh, you spewing or feeling, I mean, the artist way you talk about this, the original book, but when one reads your book, you know, you're so controlled as a writer and so beautiful. And as I say, uh, as a fellow professional writer, my morning pages are, I mean, a disaster uh, uh, sometimes. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, I think what you're talking about is a process that I call brain drain. Uh, and it's a process of siphoning off the negativity that stands between us and our creativity. Uh, yes. And I, I think uh, I have morning pages that begin, oh, good morning. It's a gray day and it matches my mood. I'm grumpy. Uh, and Good. Yes. Uh, so I'm I'm not always exalted. Uh, I am often uh, trying to be accurate about where it is I am at, uh, and where I am at uh, can be quite dark. Yes. And what's the value in that? What's the value in putting that out? Say, I think it's a good moment. Why don't Why don't you talk a little bit for a second about? But, you know, you talked a little about the intention of the new book, but I think if you talk a little bit about more about what these two tools, the, you know, the prime two tools are and uh, what their purpose is. So the real purpose of being able to spew until you and I love in the new book what you talk about, uh, about how by the third page it changes a little bit. It gets harder in a certain way, but also that's where maybe the brain comes back in or the heart comes back in. But could you just talk a bit, uh, the intention of the new book and these tools, as though you're talking to someone who hasn't received any of this material before? Well, I, I want to say that the book opens with a set of tools that are familiar to people who have worked with my work before. Uh, and they are morning pages, three pages of longhand morning writing about absolutely anything where you are giving the universe your coordinates. You're saying, this is how I feel. This is what I like. This is what I don't like. This is what I want more of. This is what I want less of. Uh, and yes. you're sort of spelling out uh, your, your position so that the universe can move into action on your behalf. Uh, and I I find uh, the artist way was a twelve week course, but actually when you're about three weeks in, you begin to be hooked on morning pages, uh, and you begin to have an experience of shift uh, and an experience of well, again, you would say the muse, uh, I would say maybe the higher power, uh, but it's an experience that's quite visceral. Uh, yes. And I think then when we go into the second tool, which is called an artist's date, you find yourself experiencing the benevolence of the universe. The artist date is a once a week assigned play date. Uh, and what I find when I teach is that if I say I have a tool, it's a nightmare. You're going to have uh, to get up 45 minutes early and work. People will go, work. Oh, work on my creativity. I get it. 
But then, right, I understand that. Sure, yeah. But then if I say, now once a week, I want you to go out and do something festive and play, people become skeptical. They cross their arms. They tilt their heads. From the front of the room, it's a wall of resistance. Uh, as people are saying, I don't see what play has to do with creativity. Uh, and I tease them. I say, well, we have an expression, the play of ideas. And we don't realize that that is actually a prescription. Play, and you will have ideas. So I think, uh, I think the two tools used together make a sort of radio kit with morning pages you're sending, with artist dates you're open to receiving. Uh, and a lot of times people will tell me that during the artist date, they had an experience of the divine. Uh, and a lot of times uh, people are not believers uh, and then they have the experience and they think, oh, well, maybe there is something to this. A couple of things occurred to me around this. One is that Central Park, for me, has been the location of many artist dates, and that's the natural world. And just walking through it, you, I connect to, to time, to rebirth, to new beginnings, to endings, and to the brief uh, amount of time we exist on this planet, and both are the resulting insignificance and significance of everything we do. And so, yeah, the, you, one might call that being aware of this, uh, a spiritual kind of an awakening, or one might just call it an awareness of uh, the world and in, in, in the opportunity of, that we have to be here for this quarter of a second uh, in, the, in the expanse of time. And I do think the natural world in that way is this incredibly joyous thing that I absolutely spent more time in intentionally because of the artist date as a concept. I find that people have a really hard time with the word artist occasionally, like calling themselves that or saying they're taking their inner artist on, on a date. And I would love for you to talk a little bit about why you chose that word and what that gift of, of allowing yourself to think of yourself that way is. Um, because you talk about this stuff so beautifully. Would you just talk a little bit about, I think, why culturally we're so scared of that word and what the gift of that, of that, of giving that to yourself is? Well, I think we have a lot of negative mythology. We, we believe, because we are taught, that there is a small group of people, an elite group of people, who can call themselves artists. Uh, and then when I say, no, maybe you can call yourself an artist. People are startled, uh, and uh, I, I coax them along. Uh, I say, okay, let's try something called an artist date. Let's try something where you take your inner consciousness and take it out into the world uh, and give it pleasure. 
Uh, and I think uh, that because we're coaxing them uh, and we're, we're saying, oh, j- just try this. Uh, I, I'm not saying at the beginning of the book, okay, you're an artist. But hopefully by the end of the book, you'll be saying, okay, I'm an artist. So it's a gradual thing uh, that is led along a step at a time. Uh, And I I think we do a lot of work with the artist's way with dismantling negativity. Uh, The idea that art has to be made from pain is something that goes. Why can it be so scary? It's almost like those cartoons from when we were kids where Bugs Bunny is able to keep going, when, uh, Bugs, Bugs runs off a cliff and can keep going until the moment Bugs looks down and then the rabbit has to fall. And sometimes like the morning pages, and I've seen it happen where, and I guess this is why the artist date is important too, where the people can find themselves beginning to be in full flight almost. And then because it does happen so quickly, as quickly as you say, three weeks, uh, sooner it can happen. It can happen in a month, but it does happen. Suddenly you're, you're living from the place where you feel most alive. And sometimes maybe for the first time ever in your life that this has happened. And then it can get scary for people. And I'm, I'm sure you've thought about this um, and experienced people telling it to you. Um, what is it about our culture that is that this idea of allowing ourselves to feel in flight is so scary sometimes? Well, I, I think what you're talking about here is a lack of humor. Uh, yeah. That we get very serious, very frightened. We're afraid of looking foolish. Uh, and yes. what we what we need to do, is rekindle a, a sense of humor so that we are lighthearted when we look at the world. Uh, and I think uh, I, I experience uh, rhyming. I'm doing this podcast wearing sunglasses because I had eye surgery. Uh, and I was worried uh, about trying to teach while looking sort of threatening, uh, yeah. I found myself writing, uh, and I'll, I'll read you the little ditty that I wrote uh, that hopefully dismantles some of the uh, negativity. <laughs> yeah, please do. This little poem goes out to my glasses, who work as a shield until this time passes. Here's to dark glasses to hide my eyelashes. I feel quite glam. In fact, I am. My writing's mysterious and makes folks delirious. But simple tools are the trick that makes a writer tick. So I share what I know and lead others so. Life without makeup is a dare I will take up. I'll wear my shades and masquerade as a competent teacher who isn't a preacher. I have stories to tell to avoid writer's hell. I love to write, blind or with sight. So I think uh, I want to say when you are faced with 
oh my God, I'm up too high and I'm going to fall, um, then it's time to write a little ditty. I'm up yes. so high, I reach the sky. I'm going to fall, but that's not all. <laughs> right. Yes. I love I love that. I love that as an uh, as an approach too and it it does explain like the the fear of looking foolish. This is what's also so valuable about the other tools in these books which when you talk about dismantling these things that hold you back, you know, the exercises that ask you to figure out what powers you were giving to other people or other forces that kept you down uh, and from creating. And um, I've, you know, did all that stuff and it, you know, I, it, it's a very incredibly useful thing. Julia, I often say to people, and it, because it's 100% true that even before the work that I did was received positively, before I was able to quit my other job and do this for my life, the moment I began writing, not the morning pages, which led me to writing the first script, as soon as I was working from a place that I knew was my best place and the place I felt most alive, every other part of my day got better. And it sounds like a religious conversion kind of, it sounds like it's bullshit, but it's not. And I know you've seen it happen a million times to people. But what I wonder is um, in, in the age in which we live, which now, you know, for me, that was 25 years ago, we're also results oriented. And I, I wonder how you think about or talk about the difference between what happens when you're creating and becoming attached to the result. And then people will look at me sometimes and go, well, but I have to, I, I need to sell something. Um, and I understand it. And it's easy for me or you to say, because we have like um, been able to live from this work somehow miraculously. So how do you speak to that? The balancing of that kind of desire? And, and, and is it a Buddhist answer? Is it a Thich Nhat Hanh answer? Like what, how do you speak to that, uh, that question? Well, I, I think again, here we go back to morning pages. Uh, and uh, I recognize that I sound like like a fanatic urging everybody to to consider them. But what I find uh, is that when you're writing morning pages, you're led in the directions of your other work. Uh, and it's a sort of witnessing process. So when when I say, thinking about the odds against your selling something, is a drink of poison. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's it's literally true, uh, and I I think uh, that pages urge you to have a process. Uh, and the new book has a tool called the daily quota, which is a, a set amount of writing that you do every day, uh, and it should be a slight amount of writing. Uh, something that you can easily allow your imagination to encompass. Uh, and what happens when you do your daily quota is today you have two pages, tomorrow you have four pages, then you have six pages, uh, and you begin to become 
secure in your sense of authorship. That's a, I mean, that is a, such a valuable thing. That's, yeah, I read, I read that in, in the book and um, have absolutely, you know, now I don't always have a, you know, you, you say that you should stop and I agree with you. Um, and, you know, it, Hemingway said stop when there's still juice left, as I know you know um, that he said that. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. But, but sometimes once you're an experienced writer and you have a lot of years behind you, I think for me anyway, I can calibrate days that I, if, especially if I have to, that I can write more. Um, but certainly uh, getting a scene done, right, if you're writing a script and saying, I'm gonna get a scene done each day, and if that's two pages or three pages, I'm going to get that done, and then I'm gonna move on, is a way to gain a lot of momentum. Uh, and I really uh, agree with it. But do you limit yourself, uh, or do you allow yourself, if you're in a state of flow, to keep, keep going now, at this stage? Well, I, I think I s stop. Uh, and I think I stop out of experience because what I have learned is that when you binge write, oh yeah, for sure, you overfish your well, uh, and then you have days when you can't write uh, because you feel empty. Uh, so I think if you s stop uh, at your daily quota, what happens is you have juice left over, which then gets applied to the next day's daily quota. Uh, and I, I think uh, I was nervous about talking to you about the daily quota because I thought, well, I wonder if that's Brian's experience. Yeah, well, for sure my experience is that binge writing is usually not productive. I think you're complete, uh, completely right about that. The demands of writing a television series that is on the air um, and that you have to write because there's a, every two weeks there's an episode that has to get shot mm -hmm. over a period of time. And you've written movies and you've written all this kind of stuff. So I think I can change the quota basically so that, and especially if we're shooting and I know I'm often what I do is write actuals, you know, you're outlining your talking story, you're thinking about it during the week. But um, often if we're shooting and then writing say the last five episodes of the season, then over the weekend, I'll write dialogue. If I'm writing scenes, I can really, really write a lot. But I would say that because of the morning pages, and I, I've said this, you know, my, my, my kids have heard this endlessly. Like because of that, I was able to lock into this thing, which is I don't consider writing scenes. Writing scenes is joyous to me. So uh, that part of the process is joy. It's filled with joy. That goes back to what I was saying about the natural world being this thing for you. But dialogue for me, writing actual scenes of conflict involving dialogue, it gives me energy. It doesn't take energy away. Now, yes, at the end of the day, I'm drained uh, and I'm ready to have like a big pot of tea or go take a walk. And I do those things or pick up the guitar and play, but I can write longer and it doesn't sap me, but I can't. But what I won't do is here's what I know. I know it takes two weekend days to write the amount that I need to write. And I will never, so to, to your point, that's what I've come to learn now. It's two we full weekend days of sitting on the couch and getting up and walking around, but returning to the couch or returning to the 
Chinese restaurant across the street um, with a big pot of green tea to do it. And I never try to make it happen in one day if it's supposed to take two, ever. I will stop because I know then I can do it the next day. So mm -hmm. I think it, it's just a longer, it might be um, more than I would do if I were writing a movie and I had six months, I might then say, I'm gonna write two scenes a day. But doing this with characters I know so well because I've been writing about them for so long, I can, I can do it. But I don't think it's different, right? It's just extending what the quota is in a way. Or does it strike you as, as too different or as unhealthy? It, it sounds like you have an imaginary quota that you're fulfilling. Yeah, yes, I think that's right. I, I think that's right. And I definitely think the having a minimum is unbelievably helpful. And, and I'll reiterate for people listening to this, I'd say for most of my writing life, David and I both had a very realistic, like if we got to write a certain number of pages, that was it. And you move on with the rest of your day. Uh, I often say you can only do a few hours a day of it. Like you can do three hours of writing basically, or most people can. And then you gotta do something else, like go do an artist date. Can you talk a little bit more about the kinds of things that function as artist dates? Uh, because you've modified it. You know, in the first book, you didn't have to say, don't take your phone. But in the new book, you say, don't take your phone. So can you talk a little bit about what an artist date is or the types of them, the modes of what they are, how you need to consciously plan them and do them? Well, yes. Um, artist, artist dates are festive expeditions. You're doing something that enchants you or interests you. Uh, and you're talking to yourself uh, in terms of an inner artist who is sort of a youngster. So you don't want to do something daunting for an artist date. You don't want to take that new computer class. Uh, but you may go to a pet store and pet George the bunny. Uh, and uh, yes. that gives you a sense of glee and expansion and hope. Uh, and I think artist dates can be planned to go sort of a sense at a time. So I'm going to take an artist date to expand my sense of taste, and then I go to a new Italian restaurant. Or I think I'm going to take an artist date to expand my sense of touch, so I pet George the bunny. Or I think I'm going to take an artist date to explore my sense of smell, so I go to a bakery. Uh, and you, you find things that wake up your senses. And why is it important to do it alone? Well, it's because if you do an artist date with someone, you're taking their artist date. If you ever gone to the movies with someone uh, and half of you is watching the movie, but half of you is watching your friend watch the movie uh, and trying to calibrate whether their response is similar to yours. So I think uh, an artist date is something where you're trying to fall in love with your own consciousness. So it's artist and date. It's two parts. That's really beautifully said. And 
a long walk to connect with the world can be that, right? If you know you want to go look at something and it's not an exercise walk, it's not for the purpose of that. It's for the purpose of feeling what it's like to walk through a neighborhood you haven't before and noticing the buildings. Is that an artist state in your mind? Yes, that would be an artist state. Uh, I think it's important uh, to make artist states easy. Uh, go to a children's bookstore and read all about choo-choo trains or all about big cats. Yes, I, I love that. I, had, I used to do this one when I was just starting this whole process. Museums were sometimes daunting to me because of the expectation of what you were supposed to do if you were a serious person in a museum, you know? A uh, serious person in a museum is there for, to learn and to serious work of take, deconstructing the paintings. And so, but I loved uh, Eve Klein Blue. Uh, there's this one Eve Klein painting at MoMA and I realized I just wanted to go and kind of hang out with this painting not with my intellect. I just wanted to go and look at this color blue that Eve Klein invented. And you know, there's that one long rectangle at MoMA that's the Eve Klein blue. And I would just go sit there and I'd bring a notebook in case I wanted to write something down, but not because I was like, write your thoughts down. I just wanted to kind of exist in front of this painting mm -hmm. and not worry that I was gonna, I'm in MoMA, I gotta look at everything. No, I could just go and sit in front of this painting for 45 minutes or an hour and experience experience whatever I felt. And it was, again, joyous. And, but also for me, picking up a guitar and not thinking I'm writing something because someone else is gonna sing it. But just picking up a guitar and seeing what happens feels like that. And I, I wanna um, say that the quota thing is, like um, it's rolling around in my brain as we're talking. I, David and I have always had short writer's rooms and I think this is part of why. Like some people, feel like there's a duty to have a writer's room for 12 hours a day after making a television show. And to us, that's always felt like a big hunk of that is going to be painful and not feel joyous and not feel like we're working from that place. And so for us, it's always been, let's stop the writer's room before we feel like it's a bummer. And that's the quota thing. It's like we do three hours and then that's it. And then everyone go think and please come in with ideas tomorrow and do whatever you have to to be alive and alert. And when we found that, it was it changed everything in our process for how to do a writer's room. And people sometimes look at us like we're nuts. But, you know, it's really <laughs> the way it works. Three hours. Great. Everyone can be happy. You know, so that's a version of the quota, I think. So I want to read a poem that was please. written out of bliss. Uh, and uh, we have a mythology that says that poetry comes from pain. But I, I think um, I wrote this poem when I was falling in love. It's called Jerusalem is Walking in This World. This is a great happiness. The air is silk. There is milk in the looks that come from strangers. I could not be happier if I were bread and you could eat me. Joy is dangerous. It fills me with secrets. Yes, kisses in my veins. The pains I take to hide myself are sheer as glass. Surely this will pass. The wind, like kisses. The music in the soup. The group of trees laughing as I say their names. 
It is all Hosanna. It is all prayer. Jerusalem is walking in this world. Jerusalem is walking in this world. Oh, that's, I mean, that's just awesome. That's so great. Yes. And I'm so glad you got to feel that way. And Hosanna's is such a great word. Ah, awesome. But what, this is a, a question I, I, I wrote down and it, this leads to it. So what do you do, Julia Cameron? What do you do when reality accretes during the course of the day? Like long after the pages are done. The pages are done. You're, uh, you've, you've written for the day also. And you get a piece of bad news or something doesn't even just go your way. How, and you know, you're not going to go do pay, or I, I don't think you're going to go do a second set of pages. Like, are you buoyed enough from basically doing these things that it helps you ride through when harsh realities sometimes intrude? Well, I, I think that the pages give you a sort of uh, life raft uh, that when you write them, uh, you find yourself feeling buoyed up. Uh, and then if you do your quota, you have great self-esteem. It's like, yes. oh, oh my God, I've, I've done my quota. Uh, and then at night, I sometimes ask for guidance. Uh, and uh, this is a fourth artist way tool, which I've been using for 35 years, but I never wrote about. <laughs> uh, and I just recently wrote a, a book about it. Uh, and it said essentially, put your question in writing and listen for an answer. So uh, when something painful happens, you say, what do I need to do? And then you listen. Uh, and often uh, you get an answer, do nothing. And you say, mm. do nothing? <laughs> 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 I have to do something. This hurts. So what do you mean do nothing? I mean relax. Ah, okay. And again, this is where I I think humor comes to play. Uh, I um, I wrote a crime novel called The Dark Room, uh, and I got nineteen good reviews. Uh, and I thought, yeah. oh, this is wonderful. And then the twentieth review came in, and it was unfortunately in the New York Times, and it was yeah. oh. it was negative. Uh, and the man who reviewed my book was named Bill Kent. Uh, and he spent his whole review attacking Carl Jung, that my detective hero liked Carl Jung, uh, and his was evidently a Freudian. Uh, and uh, so after I got the review, <laughs> I was very pained. Uh, and I, I thought, Oh, my God, I've been shamed by the New York Times, uh, and I should go out in the street wearing sackcloth and ashes. And then I remembered, wait a minute, Julia, you have a tool, and it's humor. 
So I wrote, this little poem goes out to Bill Kent, who must feel awful the way that he spent his time critiquing Carl Jung instead of on the book I'd done. Uh, and as soon as I had my humor back, I had my power back. Uh, and then I felt like I've actually just joined a very big club of people who have been shamed by the New York Times. Uh, I, you know, yeah, I've had that exact experience and it is, well, the, I find that to be, I will, I will say like um, learning that lesson young about the way that a bad re review in an important place feels truly like a gut punch. It, it, it does, you are laid low for as long as you allow yourself to be laid low. And then it is an incredible thing when you wake up and do the morning pages. And this is not to sell your books either, but you wait. I remember waking up, I got, our first movie came out and there were two reviews that came out the week before the, back then. And it was Newsweek and Time Magazine, which you know, they were the most read magazines in the country. And they hit the release date. Basically, they hit a full week before any other reviews. And they were both negative And they both singled out the writers of the movie. And I literally got in a fetal position in uh, the room that I, I was visiting. It was terrible because I was visiting my parents when the review came out. So I got to go to my childhood room and get in the fetal position. And of course, immediately I was aware from above of what that looked like, you know, the silliness of it. But I remember waking up the next morning and I had this thought, I can still write. They can't stop me from writing. And I did the morning pages. And then I started writing. And that idea, oh, they can say whatever they want about that thing that was already written and shot and out. But they can't stop me from writing today and from creating. And I, that doesn't mean you still don't have a moment. You know, you're not Pollyanna in your books either, which I love. That doesn't mean you don't have a moment where it hurts. Like, oh, that's not fun. But that moment of, oh, that hurts, which I could still get if somebody, but it goes so fast now. I'm immediately in that other place that they can't stop me from doing my work. As a result of this creative practice of doing morning pages every day and moving my body every day and the things I, like you have tools, I have tools that are cousins of some of those tools, but all those things allow, allow those things not to hurt. But, but can you speak a little bit more to the person listening to this, for whom the tangible results of the work are coming more slowly. Because I'm sure all these people who picked up the artist's way during the pandemic, they found it to be an incredible salve for their souls. And they produced work. And then some of them produced work that I'm sure you've already gotten the letters, which must be your every day people tell you that you gave them um, a new lease on life, as you have for me and many members of my family. But but what do you say to the person who's like, yeah, but I'm doing this and I feel better, but I'm rejected. Um, I can't get anyone to read my stuff. I, nobody will cover my song. Uh, how do you speak to that? You must have people come up to you after your classes and ask you this. So how do you, how do you speak to the, the, that part of it? Well, I think what we're talking about here is the need for what I call believing mirrors. Uh, yes. Believing mirrors are people who are in your vicinity who 
believe in you, believe in your work, think you're powerful, give you encouragement. Uh, and if you have a carefully selected group of believing mirrors, then when you have uh, a disappointment, the believing mirrors will say, oh, hang in. I see it getting published. When I wrote Mozart's Ghost, which is a romantic comedy, I had 43 rejections. Uh, yeah. And the 44th and 45th both wanted to publish the book. Right. That's really important. That's so important. And there are just so many examples of this. And sometimes it does feel daunting. And for people who are feeling isolated or they don't have that many believing mirrors, I will say what you would say, which is the morning pages can be that for you too. The morning pages can show your best part of yourself prodding you forward. And also might redefine for you if you, as you do the pages, a new approach to the material, right? Um, a new way to attack a life as an, as, an, as an artist. I've found that reinvention many times through, through doing the, the pages, as I, I would guess that, that you have too, right? It stops us from being stuck or mired in, in one modality of work. Yes, I think we have a mythology that says artists need to stick to what they know uh, and writers should not change genres. Uh, and what I have found is it's incredibly refreshing to change genres. Uh, it, it's a wonderful thing for your artist. Uh, and I, I want to read another poem, uh, which is called Come to Me. Uh, and this is sort of a poem from the muse to the artist. Come to me. There is no darkness in which I cannot see you. Come to me. My green heart holds your ancestors. They are waiting to hear your dreams. Speak to them. They know your name. Do not imagine you are alone. Do not imagine they have left you. They are listening, waiting for your voice. Come home. All of us are waiting. Every bird remembers you. The lion in his pride still knows your name. The gazelle, the snake, the silver heron lifting at the shore. All these and more, your family. Come back to me. You do not need to grind your bones to dust, resting your heart. You are known to us. Only come home. You are known to us. Only come home. Julia Cameron, it is such a deep pleasure to get to talk to you. You have no idea, like, um, I cannot thank you enough for everything that you've given me and so, the people I love. And um, artists all over the world, you've given hope, you've given comfort, and you've given nourishment. And I hope you continue to do it for a really long time. The new book is called Right for Life. And uh, I just find it incredibly moving that you exist in this world. And uh, I'm, I'm just deeply grateful. Thank you. And uh, wh well, where, 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 you're out speaking too, right? You're doing online courses. And where can people find you? Is, it, is there a website that's just juliacameron.com? There's a website that's juliacameronlive.com. Uh, and it has my art, it has plays, musicals, music, 
uh, all for fun and for free. So I invite you to take an artist date by coming to my website. And do you, um, where are these poems collected? Where's that Jerusalem one? Where's that collected? Where can people see that? You can see that on the uh, website. It's under poetry, uh, uh, an entry called This Earth. Great. And this is something I've only done one other time, but the first 20 people who write me uh, at themomentbk.com at Gmail, if you write me and you want to read either Write for Life or The Artist's Way, tell me, tell me which one, and I will send that book to you as a gift, uh, as long as you promise that someday, if and when you can, you will pass that gift on. Because I have a stack of Julia's books in my office. I give them away to people. Uh, and every person I've ever given them to who has taken the time to open them and try to do the, actually do the program has resurfaced in my life to tell me how much it has helped them. And uh, so the first 20 of you who write me, I will send, uh, I will send you a book uh, along with both Julia and my uh, best wishes on your creative journey. Uh, Julia, thanks a lot. This has been great. Thank you.